From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Former President Donald Trump will face a judge this week to hear the charges against him. Find out what to expect. And we check in with Iranian protesters six months after the death of a woman in police custody. Also, an election in Wisconsin this week could bring big changes to the state Supreme Court. Plus, everybody's talking about AI. We asked ChatGPT to write us some songs, and the results were mixed. I'm a rebel, a fighter, a force to be reckoned with. I'm Beyonce, and I don't back down. It's Sunday, April 2nd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Parts of the South and Midwest are dealing with catastrophic damage following powerful storms that spawned a deadly tornado outbreak across at least eight states. The National Weather Service confirms the twister that hit Little Rock, Arkansas was an EF3 with winds up to 165 miles per hour. The weather is blamed for killing at least 26 people, including three in Indiana, where homes and an airport were destroyed. Reginald Hardwick is with Illinois Public Media. Friday night's tornado cut a path through Crawford County, which borders Indiana. The storm leveled at least 25 homes and destroyed a building at Lincoln Trail College. The county airport took a direct hit, and airplanes were thrown across nearby cropland. Bill Burke is the county board chairman. To live it and actually be right beside it and be trying to work in the middle of it, I've never, ever in my life seen anything like it. Like I said, it looked like a war zone. Governor J.B. Pritzker issued a disaster proclamation to rush aid to Crawford and four other Illinois counties affected by severe weather. For NPR News, I'm Reginald Hardwick. A former top Bush administration official who once supported prosecuting terrorists at the U.S. military base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, now says that was, in his words, doomed from the start. And NPR Sasha Pfeiffer reports that he's urging President Biden to settle the 9-11 case rather than pursue a death penalty trial. The 9-11 case has still not gone to trial more than two decades after the September 11th attacks. So former U.S. Solicitor General Ted Olson told NPR that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his four co-defendants should be offered plea deals to resolve the charges against them. If these individuals are willing to plead guilty and to accept a sentence of life imprisonment without possibility of parole, hopefully that will bring about the conclusion of this long, unending chapter. Olson called a 9-11 settlement agreement, quote, the only practical resolution, and said he hopes President Biden will support it. Sasha Pfeiffer. NPR News. To Ukraine, where President Volodymyr Zelensky is hailing the first anniversary of the Russian withdrawal from the Kyiv region. He said Ukrainians had stopped what he called the greatest force of our time, as the BBC's Danny Eberhardt reports. A year ago, Russian forces were pulling out from the Kyiv region and other neighboring areas of northern Ukraine. It was confirmation that Moscow's initial plans to oust President Zelensky's government had gone badly wrong. And he's keen to capitalize on these anniversaries to build morale. But large swathes of his country remain under occupation. And the fighting is continuing. Russian shelling of a town near Bakhmut, Kostyantinivka, has damaged residential buildings, killing at least three people. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt reporting, and you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Massachusetts Attorney General is agreeing to settle with minority police officers who say they missed opportunities for promotion because of a biased exam. The $40 million agreement ends a decades-long fight against the state. 600 black and Hispanic officers claimed questions on the civil service sergeant's promotional exam were discriminatory. A whale researcher calls it extraordinary. Nearly 80 North Atlantic right whales are swimming in Cape Cod Bay. Only a few hundred of the critically endangered whales are still alive. The marine mammals usually return to the area in the spring after migrating south for the winter. Rescuers are trying to free one of the whales from being heavily entangled in hundreds of yards of rope. Christians are marking Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week. Boston's Roman Catholic Cardinal Sean O'Malley will be celebrating Mass at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross. If you have trouble getting around Cambridge today, then you can thank two guys born and bred in Cambridge, Matt Damon and Casey Affleck. The Harvard Bridge is closed until 11 this morning while they film their new movie. And to accommodate filming, Memorial Drive between Vassar Street and Benny Street will close this afternoon from 1 o'clock to 5.30. In sports, the Bruins won their 59th game of the season yesterday, defeating the Penguins 4-3. With six games remaining, Boston needs to get to 63 wins to break the league record for season wins. The team already has set the franchise record for victories in a regular season. The Bees are in St. Louis to play the Blues this afternoon. It is 41 degrees in Boston, becoming sunny today, breezy, temperatures in the 40s. Overnight lows will drop to the mid-20s tomorrow. You can expect mostly sunny skies and highs reaching the mid-50s for Monday. On Tuesday, some clouds, a slight chance of showers, and a high around 60 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PBS with The Sun Queen. American Experience presents the story of scientist Maria Telkish, who dedicated her career to harnessing the power of the sun, premiering Tuesday at 9, 8 central on PBS. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Donald Trump is set to walk into a Manhattan criminal court for arraignment on Tuesday. A grand jury indicted him last week, making him the first former president to face criminal charges. And special preparations are underway to receive Donald Trump. To give us an idea of what we can expect next week, we turn to Molly Crane Newman. She reports on Manhattan federal and state courts for New York Daily News and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Aisha. So I know you spent a lot of time at the Manhattan courts um, and have covered big trials from Ghislaine uh, Maxwell to Harvey Weinstein to El Chapo. Like what normally happens when high profile people appear um, at court and, and how is it different from a typical arraignment? The way it typically goes down is when somebody is indicted, um, if they're not already in custody, they negotiate a surrender date with prosecutors. So in this case, Trump is going to surrender around 1 p.m. on Tuesday and is going to appear before a judge at about 2.15 p.m. He will 
um, you know, have his photo taken at the DA's office. He'll have um, fingerprints taken. Um, Donald Trump's lawyer, Joe Takapina, has said that he he is not expecting he will be handcuffed on Tuesday. Um, but in a typical case, that that is what would happen. Um, once the defendant is, is before the judge, um, you know, they hear the charges against them, they enter a plea. Um, and at that point, you know, prosecutors might ask for bail or other restrictions. At this point, there's no indication any of them will be bail eligible. Um, you know, the judge is not expected to find that Trump poses a risk of flight, as is the standard in New York. And his lawyers will, uh, you know, speak with the judge and, and the prosecutors will talk and set a motion schedule to come back to court as he fights his case pretrial. It seems like a lot of people are probably wondering, like, will there be a mugshot? Um, is is that something that's typical in these cases? Yeah, so it is. So, you know, just like any defendant, Trump will be required to have his mugshot taken. Officially, that will not be released. And whether, you know, this is definitely going to be leaked or it's going to be the opposite um, is not clear. But he will be required to to have his mugshot taken when he when he surrenders to the courthouse and before he appears in court. So when can we expect to know about the contents of Donald Trump's charges once they are unsealed? So will it be in the courtroom that the judge will read them out? Is that the first time we'll know what the actual, you know, the charges are? Yeah, we're expecting the, the indictment to be unsealed at that moment when Trump appears in court and for prosecutors to go through the indictment. Um, that is the moment um, where we're going to hear the charges for the first time and where Trump is going to hear the charges for the first time. What will you be looking out for or listening for um, when the, the charges are read? The big question is, is it going to center on the you know now notorious hush money payoff to Stormy Daniels ahead of the 2016 election? Um, or is it going to explore other territory? You know, Trump is facing multiple counts, at least one felony uh, related to business fraud. The grand jury heard from Michael Cohen and and several people kind of involved in, in that scheme. But we also know that, you know, the DA's office has been investigating Trump for four years and, you know, in 2019 and in 2020, um, as the former DA, Cy Vance, wanted to get Trump's taxes. And we did learn a lot in court filings about what they were looking at, how he ran his business in New York and, and multiple different aspects of that. The thinking is that the case is going to be centered on these on these hush money payments, but the, that's what I'll be looking out for as they're reading the marriages. Um, how far did they veer away from that? And, and, you know, Donald Trump has warned of, quote, death and destruction if he is charged with a crime. How are security officials across the city and the state of New York preparing for Tuesday? Yeah, you know, so just even in the last two weeks, um, police presence down at the courthouse, you know, state and federal law enforcement and, you know, courthouse security. Um, we've really seen quite a heavy presence. There's barricades, um, you know, kind of enacted all around the courthouse. There were two bomb threats that were quickly deemed to be bogus. There was a white powder scare in the Manhattan DA's mailroom, the Manhattan DA's office, and, you know, various websites associated with him and his campaign for DA have been inundated with, um, with hate mail and death threats and um, you know, Trump is going to be accompanied by the Secret Service at all times when when he comes. And, you know, Bragg, certainly uh, the, the DA who who has brought this case, he's been accompanied by a pretty heavy security detail um, coming to work and leaving um, for the last couple of weeks. Is there anything else that you'll be keeping a close eye on Tuesday and during this trial? I guess you want to see how it's going to play out. Yeah, so, you know, I'm really interested to see how, um, you know, how Trump himself is, is going to be on Tuesday when he appears in court. 
he had called on on supporters to come down and protest. Um, you know, definitely interested to see how the courts themselves are going to handle, you know, a case of this magnitude and international media descending from all over the world to cover it and this beefed up security presence. I'm interested to see how, you know, if that's going to happen just every time Trump comes to court or if this is what the, the courts are going to look like for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. That's Molly Crane Newman, a reporter for New York Daily News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aisha. And as we just heard, former President Trump's indictment in New York will be unsealed in the coming days. NPR's media correspondent David Folkenflik has noticed that conservative media outlets like Fox News are not grappling with the underlying facts in the case. Instead, they've been leaning into their sweet spot, being anti-anti-Trump. Hear more of his analysis on All Things Considered later today. Listen by, listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's been more than six months since huge protests rocked Iran following the death of 22-year-old Massa Amini in police custody. Amini, who also went by her Kurdish name Gina, had been detained by the country's morality police for failing to properly wear her hijab or Islamic headscarf. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been contacting protesters and others on where things might go from here and has this report. The demonstrations that broke out in Iran's largely Kurdish northwest and quickly spread across the country represented the biggest challenge to Iran's cleric-led regime in its more than four decades in power. Protesters quickly shifted from demanding justice for Masa Amini's death after her arrest to demanding the complete overthrow of the government. Six months later, protesters say the demonstrations did usher in some important changes, such as more women discarding the hijab. Maysam, from the city of Rasht, who we reached through voice messages, sees that as a step forward. Like all Iranians interviewed for this story, he asked that his family name not be used for fear of retribution for speaking to the media. Thousands of protesters have been arrested and hundreds killed. Maysam says, however, that if the question is, did the demonstrations ever pose an existential threat to the government, he thinks not. From my own perspective, no. I am not so hopeful that the Iranian society is capable of causing fundamental changes like toppling the Islamic Republic. The morality police haven't been seen in months, and Maysam says security forces are no longer focusing on enforcing the hijab rules, except when they see an opportunity to make a little money. For example, in my own case, a police officer who came to my workplace, which is a public place and many women were not wearing hijab there, just asked me for a bribe and went away. So these laws have turned into an income source for the police. Another protester, Sarah, a teacher from Tehran, says the government has no reason to feel confident. She says in many neighborhoods, people are still chanting anti-regime slogans at 9 o'clock each night. People are swearing and cursing the ruling system every chance they get, and many trade unions gather in small protests here and there every day. Also, many religious people who maybe supported them before have lost all hope and changed their minds about them. So in short, yes, after Mahsa Amini's death, there have been many obvious and significant changes. She says many people hope the uprising continues, even as families are facing very hard economic times. Analyst Henry Rome with the Washington Institute for Near East Peace says the economy seems to be what Iran's leaders are focused on. 
He says anyone expecting the government to make concessions now is misreading the lessons Iran's Islamist ruling class learned from their own rise to power more than four decades ago. I think the leadership of the country, which came to power through a revolution of their own, likely drew the lesson from the overthrow of the Shah that even modest concessions can actually hasten the downfall of a regime as opposed to um, avoid it. We reached Imad, a 32-year-old protester in Tehran. He says the demonstrators won't give up their hopes of toppling the government. Even if this regime gives freedom of hijab, even if they control inflation, even if unemployment comes down to zero and whatever else you can imagine, people will still be demanding one thing, and that is the dismissal of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Analyst Nasan Rafati with the International Crisis Group says the government is equally determined to hang on to power. You know, they do make occasional tactical adjustments, but among the hardline elite that right now dominate most of the system, it's a matter of not making concessions, but in fact doubling down and hoping that through uh, iron fist and repression that probably a, a very small minority, but a group within the population and within the system who agree with them, give them enough of a critical mass to maintain control. Rafati says the West should continue some of its early measures, such as helping Iranians have access to the Internet and isolating the Iranian government. He says that support should continue so the Iranian people don't feel abandoned. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918, and coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear about how Wisconsin's political future could depend on one seat on the state Supreme Court. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. And the Umbrella Arts Center with Middleton Heights, the tale of a Filipino family pursuing the American dream. Now through April 23rd, theumbrellaarts.org. Well, I think we've seen in the past few years why public radio matters so much. I mean, call us kind of nerdy, but we have a dedication to fact-checking, to the truth, to hearing all voices, to making sure that we amplify voices that aren't getting heard with a lot of the bombast that's coming at us. There are things that you hear on public radio with the way the broadcast landscape has changed that you just don't hear in many other places. So I, I think people have come to really feel the value of public radio. That is Here and Now co-host Robin Young, uh, you know, who who had a conversation about what is really at the heart of the reporting and the storytelling that you get from WBUR. And this is the journalism that we're asking you to support. Our listeners who give provide the biggest share of our funding. That's why we are asking you to join those listeners who give, you can start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. If you have not 
contributed to WBUR before. Right now, a match is in effect. It means your contribution will be doubled. It's matched dollar for dollar. It's just a little way we can, uh, you know, encourage you to join the folks who are supporting the journalism that we all count on here on WBUR. We bring you stories that expand your world. Just now from Istanbul, we take you into neighborhoods or events or or programs that you may not have encountered before. It's a fascinating way to be sure that you're connected to this amazing city we all live in, the greater Boston area, where there is just so much happening. Of course, we, like any place else, are not immune to the storms that can take out our power and, and, and leave us feeling kind of isolated. It's going to be um, breezy today. Make sure that you have one of these Eton radios, if you don't already, stocked up for the times that you may need it so that you can continue to stay connected to the world. An Eton radio is, is hand-cranked. It can, it's also powered by the sun. It's got a flashlight. It can recharge your phone. For a monthly contribution of $20 a month, we would love to send you one of these. And of course, as Sharon just told you, that $20 a month can become 40 if you are a new contributor here to WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Argentina VR didn't want to lose her business after the pandemic hit. She owns a barbershop and a cleaning business. She was able to learn all sorts of new skills with the help of a nonprofit. She was able to do spreadsheets and social media marketing and all these necessary things in the 21st century. Oh my God, it's better. And we can find everything like fast. How does it feel to be able to do all of this stuff now? I feel, oh my God, very, very, very nice. I feel like, you know, like I'm the best. <laughs> I think we can learn a lot from listening to other people's experiences, especially when it's something that has worked. My name is Yasmin Amr. I'm a senior business reporter at WBUR. Giving the gift of a more informed citizenry, I mean, that is not just about you. That is about literally everybody else around you. So I'd encourage everybody to think about giving. Just go to WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287, or as Yasmin Emmer says, you can also uh, go to the website WBUR.org to make your contribution. And, you know, uh, we have these Eton radios that we would love to give you as our thanks um, for your contribution. These these radios are self-powered. They keep you connected even when you lose power. And, you know, it is an imperfect world. And we do sometimes lose power with storms that crop up here and again. So these Eton radios are valuable. They are they're great products. And, you know, they're just flat out necessary. So uh, why don't you go ahead and make that monthly contribution of $20 a month to WBUR to support the journalism that you're counting on, and, and we'd be happy to send you that radio, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, many of you think of WBUR as this well-established, solid news outlet that's just always been part of the Boston landscape, and that's really true, but I think many of you may not realize that it's because of you. We are here because of what you have built, because of the contributions that you have made to this radio station. We are really only as strong as those of you who listen, read online, and make a, don and make a donation. So 
you got to keep that going. It's really critical that you step up when it's time, and now is the time. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And that's right. The largest share of our funding is listener support. And again, when you make that contribution, your monthly contribution by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287, you make the contribution and we turn your contribution uh absolutely directly into the programming that you count on, the journalism that you rely on. And, you know, it's it, it doesn't actually uh, come cheap. There are layers and layers of professionals here making sure that we are bringing you the most accurate stories in context, with depth, with, with nuance. We have editors, we have producers, we have sound designers. You are getting the news on the air. You are getting information in podcasts. You are reading the newsletters. You are going to City Space. These are all things that we are proud to bring you. They cost a little money, and we are supported by our listeners. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Today, many Americans will be heading to church, and there will be prayers for the victims of last week's shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. The police there were praised for their swift response, but how are these incidents changing the way they operate and the culture of law enforcement? To help answer that question, with us is Pete Kraska, a professor of justice studies at Eastern Kentucky University who studies police militarization. Thank you so much for being with us, Pete. Thank you for having me. So, you know, obviously last week we saw another just terrible shooting How can police departments prepare to respond to these types of shootings? What what does that even entail? It's a very difficult situation for the police. It's something that they are trying to figure out. It used to be that you had specialized police units, like a SWAT team, a special response team that would handle these kinds of circumstances. But now with an active shooter situation and time is of the essence, And a SWAT team will take anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes to deploy. Oftentimes, it's the road patrol officers that are in proximity to the situation that arrive first and have to handle that situation expeditiously. One of the big issues is that these shootings are involving very high firepower, you know, these semi-automatic rifles or or things like the AR-15 and are police getting more or using more of these sorts of weapons to deal with the fact that these are the sort of instances that they may face? It's difficult to say because these instances are still, at least statistically, extremely rare. 
So whether these police departments are jumping in and saying, you know, we have to get certain kinds of weaponry and we have to do certain kinds of training, we don't really have any data on that right now. Certainly, from what I know, with working with different police departments, it's on the tip of their mind. Um, they are more and more road patrol officers are now armed with what we call long guns or, or AR-15 or some similar type of weapon. And most of the time there are policies in place, but it's really sporadic that those guns can only come out and be deployed under real specific active shooter situations. I want to dig into that because if you have more police officers carrying long guns, what does it mean to have a police force that is so heavily armed in your community? Right. And and the heavily armed part is really significant and that could have all kinds of consequences. But we also have to remember that the training that comes along with being heavily armed is steeped in a mindset of we're going to be confronting an enemy. And that could happen any day, any moment, at any time. And that can have really uh, negative consequences for the relationship between the community and police. When the police start seeing their jobs as so terribly dangerous and risk-filled that they need to fully arm themselves like a soldier and then approach the citizenry that way in a democratic society, you're obviously going to displace a, an ethic of engagement with the community. Even though statistically they are relatively rare, mass shootings in this country are, are much more than other industrialized democracies. So the question is, well, how, how can the police deal with this? I know some would say the police are not the answer. Well, I hope that politicians and to some extent the media doesn't put a lot of the burden for solving this problem on the police because all the police can do under these circumstances is wait for these things to happen. And I mean, it's not all they can do, but most of what they can do is wait for these things to happen and then react to that situation. And unfortunately in this country, we really focus on police-centered solutions. And I think in this particular situation, there's not a good police-centered solution. They certainly have to be part of the solution, but new gun control laws, doing something about just the ubiquity of guns in society has to be addressed. And at the same time, I think it is really important to make sure that the police are well-equipped and well-trained to handle these situations when they do come up. That's Pete Kraska, a professor of justice studies at Eastern Kentucky University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. In Wisconsin, an election on Tuesday could flip the ideological balance of the state's Supreme Court. The new the new justice is almost certain to decide a challenge to the state's abortion ban. As Wisconsin Public Radio's Sean Johnson reports, there are those in both parties who say the race could also change the political trajectory of the state. During a recent Saturday night in Madison, people lined up down the street for an event aimed at turning out the Democratic vote. Races for Supreme Court in Wisconsin are officially nonpartisan, but that's not how it works in practice. This is a Democratic city, and the Democratic voters in this line are here to support Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasewicz. 
At the front of the line is Madison resident Ariel Hendrickson, who says the election boils down to two issues. Uh, abortion rights and making sure that gerrymandering does not get any worse in our state. Abortion has been a major issue here since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade last summer because it reinstated Wisconsin's pre-Civil War abortion ban. And gerrymandering of the state's legislative districts has helped Republicans win big majorities in the legislature, cementing a conservative agenda for more than a decade. Sheila Hosseini of Madison says people understand the stakes of the race, which could flip the court from a conservative to a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years. I mean, I know people keep saying this, but this is probably one of the most important elections for Wisconsin, especially because reproductive rights are on the line. In swing state Wisconsin, election after election, people are used to hearing that this campaign is the most important. But University of Wisconsin-Madison political science and law professor Howard Schwaber says there's actually so much riding on Wisconsin's court race that this time it might be true. I have to agree. I think this election really does live up to its hype in the sense that the stakes are extraordinarily high across an extraordinarily broad range of issues. Money has poured into the race, doubling and by one estimate, tripling the old national record for spending in a state Supreme Court race. At a Republican get-out-the-vote party in the Milwaukee suburb of Hales Corners, organizers warn a long list of GOP accomplishments could get struck down if liberals win the court, including voting laws and gun laws. Longtime conservative activist Orville Seamer says former Republican Governor Scout Walker's signature law curbing union rights could also be in danger. All those things, they don't appear on the ballot, but they really are on the ballot. People are voting on those issues. And the people here in this room, conservative people, they want to maintain that. Their candidate is Dan Kelly, a former state Supreme Court justice who was originally appointed by Walker in 2016. Kelly lost his last election in 2020. As a private lawyer, Kelly once defended Republicans' legislative maps. His recent clients included the Republican National Committee. But while everyone else is talking about these issues, Kelly notably isn't. If I were to start talking about my political views, that would be no more relevant to this race than who I think the Packers' next quarterback ought to be. It's not that Kelly has never shared his views. About a decade ago, Kelly wrote in a blog that abortion took the life of a human being. He wrote a passage in a book comparing affirmative action to slavery. But Kelly says it's inappropriate for him to share his political views as a judicial candidate, since a judge's job is applying the law. I am running to be the most boring Supreme Court justice in the history of the country. Because the role of the court is not to be original. It's not to be innovative. Protosewitz has no such hesitation when it comes to sharing her personal beliefs, particularly on abortion. So I'll tell you this. I have been very, very forthright that my personal value is that women have a right to choose. Reproductive decisions belong to the person, right? And when it comes to talking about Wisconsin's Republican-drawn legislative districts, she says the maps are rigged. I would certainly welcome the opportunity to have a fresh look at our maps. For Democrats, in this moment, the race means everything. With a liberal majority on the court and new maps, their hope is that they could finally push the state's politics to the left, like neighboring Minnesota and Michigan. They also describe this race in presidential terms, because whichever side wins will have a majority on the court for the 2024 presidential race. That means they'll handle election lawsuits in Wisconsin, the swing state where each campaign feels a little more important than the last. 
For NPR News, I'm Sean Johnson in Madison. Actor Jonathan Majors was arraigned in New York City last week on several charges that he assaulted and harassed a woman. Majors has been emerging as a force in Hollywood. He's out right now in a big Marvel movie in Creed 3. Before he was arrested, I taped an interview with him last month for Weekend Edition. Pop Culture Happy Hour also published an extended version of it days before his arrest. Joining me now to discuss the allegations against Majors is NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Swukas. Hi, Anastasia. Hey there, Aisha. So a lot has happened since that interview aired. Can you catch us up on what's going on? Sure thing. So police here in New York City responded to a call late last Saturday morning for a domestic dispute between a 33-year-old man who was majors and a 30-year-old woman. And at that point, the woman who has not been identified publicly told the police she'd been assaulted. In a statement to NPR, the NYPD confirmed that police arrested majors and that the alleged victim, quote, sustained minor injuries to her head and neck and was removed to an area hospital in stable condition. So has majors made any public response? He's denied all the allegations through his lawyer, Priya Chowdhury. Chowdhury also told us it was Majors himself who called 911 over concerns for her mental health. And Aisha, Chowdhury also says the woman made a series of written statements taking back those allegations. This past Wednesday, Chowdhury gave us screenshots of a series of texts, and those texts are the purported statements that the woman sent to Majors. Now, I've got to note that in the screenshots that were given to us, the texts are undated, and neither the names of the sender nor the recipient are visible. And of course, they came from Majors' criminal defense attorney. And so it sounds like those texts have not been independently verified. No, this is all information coming from Chowdhury. According to Chowdhury, these texts were sent to Majors just hours after he was arrested. And the person sending those texts appeared to have written that they were assured by the authorities that Majors would not be charged, that they tried to grab Majors' phone during an argument, that they told police that he had not attacked them, and that they did not support Majors being charged with any crimes. So what do the police and prosecutors have to say? Well, the 911 call has not been released as of now. Uh, we filed a request to see the arrest report with the NYPD. That request was denied since this is still an active investigation. And similarly, the Manhattan DA's office told us this week that as this is an active and ongoing investigation, the DA had no further comment. So, I mean, Majors has been a star on the rise. How is Hollywood responding to this arrest? Yeah, he very much has been. And so far in this case, Hollywood seems to be sitting tight and waiting to see just what happens next. For example, Marvel and Disney, who are behind Ant-Man and the Wasp and the rest of the Marvel Universe, have yet to make any statement about any of this, but there was some immediate fallout. Majors had been featured in a marketing campaign for the Army, and that was launched at the very start of the NCAA March Madness College Basketball Tournament. The Army pulled that campaign right away, saying it was deeply concerned by the allegations. That's culture correspondent Anastasia Sulkas. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 940. And coming up in a few minutes, a conversation with the Food Network's Guy Fieri. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative, bringing Jewish culture to life for us all, in person and online. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Thank you very much if you've already made a contribution. If you haven't yet, well, consider this. I mean, democracy itself really depends on independent journalism and listener support is the foundation of the independent journalism here at WBUR. It is the largest share of our funding. I'll repeat that, listener support is the largest share of our funding at WBUR. So when you give WBUR $10 a month, if that's what's right for you, or $30 a month, $50 a month, you give us the freedom to carry out this independent journalism, to report without fear or favor. So that's why we're asking you to go to WBUR.org or to call 1-800-909-9287 to make your monthly contribution. And right now, a match is in effect. Your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. So your $20 a month contribution to WBUR boom, that becomes $40. Uh, thank you very much for even thinking about it. Thank you even more for going and calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Where you get stories that take you beneath the headlines. You know, we've just had two great examples of stories you may have kind of come across sometime this week and thought, huh, wonder what that's all about. Well, here is where you get to know exactly what's going on. You get reporters on the ground. You get the deep analysis. You get the thoughtful conversations. One coming up with, with the uh, restaurant critic who, you know, one of my nephews swears by. He did, like doesn't go to a restaurant unless guy's been there and told them that it's good. So um, who is this guy? If you haven't heard of him, you're about to find out. It's one of the many ways that we try to be sure that you, while you're, you know, rushing around doing whatever you've got to do with your work, your kids, that you stay in touch with the main dynamics that are that are shaping our lives these days. 1-800-909-9287 is the way to make sure you can do that easily, quickly, and really be sure that you can count on the news and information you hear. And here's a, a great way that you can um, accept our thanks uh, for making your contribution to WBUR. We would love to send you an Eton radio. These are those self-powered radios, really high quality, absolutely will uh, be vital for you to stay connected to the news uh, at such time as you might be going through a power outage. Hey, it happens to everybody at some point. Those extended power outages are just sort of a fact of life. But uh, this uh, Eton radio, you know, it has it, everything you would need in that situation. It can be charged uh, by solar, hand turbine, DC power. You're always prepared. You can charge your phones with it. Um, and when you make your contribution of $20 a month to WBUR, we would be happy to get you this Eton radio. And right now, 
when you make that uh, $20 a month contribution, frankly, when you make a contribution at whatever level feels right for you, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Hi, I'm Cristela Guerra. I'm Amelia Mason. I'm Ariel Gray. And I'm Andrea Shea. We're WBUR's arts and culture reporters. Every year, we fan out to find emerging artists of color for our series, The Makers. It's a lot of work, but we're honored to share their boundless creativity, which comes in so many forms. You would have known that I wasn't strong enough to hold on. If you'd have loved me when I was with you. There's music, photography, sculpture, dance, storytelling, even... Yes, motorcycles. The Makers is just one of the ways we help you discover and learn about the groundbreaking artists in our midst. Boston's vibrant art scene is crucial to seeing and understanding ourselves in ways nothing else can. I think that is the power of art, that it's like an alchemy. You can take even your struggles and you can convert it into something beautiful that other people can experience and and be fulfilled by. Your support today will help us introduce you to the next maker. The next painter. The next sculptor. The next musician. I'm not just a boy, I'm a man. I'm not just a man, I'm a god. I'm not just a god, I'm a maker. Absolutely the best arts coverage in Boston, unparalleled. Your donations make that happen. People like you are the reason that you can come to us for the theater reviews, the music reviews, for that amazing series that happens every year, The Makers. Your money is going right into that coverage. There's no padded expense accounts, nothing. It is directly into the news, and we need to hear from you to be sure that we can keep doing that. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And when you give now, your monthly contribution to WBUR will be matched dollar for dollar. Um, All you have to do is go to the phone, 1-800-909-9287, or uh, go to WBUR.org. Listener support is the largest share of our funding. And once you make that contribution, we will get right to work turning that contribution directly in to the journalism that you count on. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you. dreaded device in the culinary universe. It is the randomizer. Guy Fieri isn't just another celebrity chef. He's the commander, the big cheese, the top hot dog of an entertainment empire stretching across numerous TV shows. Let's light things up! One of them, Tournament of Champions, is wrapping up its fourth season next Sunday, April 9th. While his breakout hit, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, affectionately known as the Triple D, is finishing its 16th year on the Food Network. 
Guy Fieri joins us now. Welcome to the program. That's quite the intro, Aisha. Quite the intro. We have to make sure we get it correct. <laughs> yeah, you had all you had you had all of my stats. Tournament of Champions is a competitive cooking show. Um, and this season you added a twist, the randomizer wild card. Tell me about that. Well, if you understand what the randomizer is, it's it's five different spinning wheels that uh, pick the protein, the vegetable, the type of food, a particular piece of equipment that must be employed, and the time. Well, we thought, why don't we take it one step further? Everybody's kind of getting a little bit you know, of an idea of what goes on. Let's try doing something different. We took the time out of it. We said, okay, we'll give you a guaranteed amount of time, but you're gonna get a wild card, ingredient or equipment that's gonna be put into play. And it definitely set everybody spinning this year. What were some of the wildest like combinations that you got and like were people able to like roll with it? If I were to pick five ingredients out of your cupboard and some piece of equipment and said, you've gotta use this uh, juicer, you've gotta take these sardines, this peanut butter, and you need to make me an all-American dish fried in 30 minutes. You're watching Michelin-starred chefs. You're watching gurus of the industry. You're watching people that have done it all look at me with their eyes crossed and just want to go, <laughs> where's my mom? Can I go home? Yeah, yeah. So you became famous thanks to diners, drive-ins, and dives, as we mentioned, the triple D. And so let's listen to part of an episode when you tried a peanut butter burger in Logan, Utah. Let's build our peanut butter burger with the cheese and the bacon. Don't overdo it on the peanut butter. Chipotle, sriracha sauce, there's tomatoes and onions. Hamburger, and there you go, sir. How did it taste? Let's be real. How did it taste? It's not going to be my first choice. Okay. <laughs> but not because it wasn't uh, made properly or not because people don't love it. Um, I'm not a huge peanut butter fan in that context. Tell us how this show came about. Like you go all over the country and you go to all these places where there are, you know, unique local gyms and try the food. Like how did this come about? Um... The interest of it is, is these mom and pop restaurants, and I was a mom and pop restaurant guy. You know, when I started out with my first restaurant when I was 26, and I know how difficult it is to get the attention, to get the recognition, to get the awareness, to get the support. And so we said, let's build a show that goes around and finds funky joints, places that are not on the beaten path, places that you might not stop at every time because it's got a funny name or the building's not the most picturesque or it's not in the greatest part of town. And let's go highlight these places. And when we first started it, people said, you know, what do you think? He, he, I said, yeah, it'll do it for a couple of years. We'll probably run out of places. I could do this for another 100 years because the mom and pop restaurants are really kind of like the, the fabric, the tent poles of the community. I mean, everybody has their favorite burger joint, their dive joint, their getaway place. It's these mom and pop joints that are really kind of the, they're the heart and soul. You you always seem to love the food. Like, is it? Did you ever eat anything that you were like, this don't really taste good? Because whenever I eat something I don't like, you can see it on my face immediately for the first bite. <laughs> I'm not selling you a bag of beans. If I don't like it, you won't see it. We do so much research. By the time I'm going to a location, I've had such a chance 
to understand what this restaurant's about. Like I'm doing research right now for a, another shoot we're getting ready to do. And I've got five researchers that work and they've sent me the research binder and the research on the restaurant's about 15 pages long. And there's so many things I can tell about a restaurant before I'm actually at the restaurant that I can know whether or not it's gonna work. Like what are some of the key things? Well, how do they make chicken? Do they make their stocks? Do they make their salad dressings? Do they make their, their pizza place? Do they make the pizza dough? They're a bakery, do they bake the buns? How did it come together? Who are they? How did they learn? All this kind of stuff. Over the years, the types of restaurants that you go to on the show have kind of broadened. Like at the beginning, it was a lot of barbecue joints and burger joints, and you still have those, but now it seems like there's more Asian fusion. You have Haitian food, Mediterranean. Like, was this a conscious shift to kind of make sure you were diversifying? Because there's a lot of food in the U.S. representing all these different cultures. It wasn't necessarily conscious. I don't know that I do anything consciously. I don't know that I'm that <laughs> smart. Um, it's where the food's going. You know, it's like vegetarian. I was just at my son's high school doing some some projects with them for their culinary program, and we were talking about food diversities, you know, of what's going on with gluten intolerance and, and vegetarian and veganism. And, and and I'm like, it's, it's what's happening. It's the truth. It's the future. Um, I'm looking for places with character. I'm looking for places with story, and I'm looking for places that make great food. And whatever combination that is, bring it. I want to ask you about what your relationship is to food, because food can be so complicated. You know, a lot of the food we want to eat is unhealthy, and then people can judge you if you don't eat well, and the way you eat, and what you eat, and how you eat. There is, like, all of this stuff. People shouldn't judge people. If you want to eat chips that were processed and made in Schenectady in a, in a factory and shipped across the country on a rail. Have at it, you know? I eat Doritos, so that's what I have every Sunday morning for <laughs> Doritos have their place in history, all right? Yes, we make taco yes. salad on, uh, at my house, and Doritos make it on there. The thing is this. I'm your cook. I'm not your doctor, okay? I'm not here to tell you what you should and shouldn't do to yourself. I do think people should be more conscious. Personally, I, I am trying to be very conscious about what I eat, when I eat, how I eat. Um, I eat way different now than I did 15 years ago. I've learned more. I've become more educated about food and about how food makes me feel. You know, we're starting to have such a better education as a society about what food does and doesn't do. I just want to ask you really quickly, the Triple D, the, the diners, drive-ins, and, and dives, it's become its own form of comfort viewing. So it's not just comfort food, it's comfort viewing. How does that feel for you? Well, I think, Aisha, it's kind of like you. Look at the smile you have on your face talking to me and sharing all this information with the world. And I think it's in human nature that we have this innate feeling of responsibility to try to take care of one another and to love one another and support one another and honor one another. I'm a cook. I'm a dude from Northern California. I don't have any special talent other than just, I love to laugh. You know, I love to have a good time. And something I'm doing and putting together is, in, is making people feel happy and, and giving people comfort. For me, I, that's the greatest gift. That's Guy Fieri host of a number of shows on the Food Network, most recently the fourth season of Tournament of Champions. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm 
Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 9.56. And coming up in a few minutes, another hour of weekend edition, starting with an overview of the turbulent political scene. Also a legal scholar's analysis of how the indictment of Donald Trump might serve as a test of American democracy. And first, we want you to help make this all possible We are asking you to make a monthly contribution to support the news here on WBUR. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. WBUR's Martha Biebinger is with me in the studio. We are reminding you that when you make your monthly contribution right now, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. So... Your contribution of, say, $10 a month becomes $20 a month, and it makes a big difference because the largest share of our funding is listener support. Your support fuels our journalism. Our journalism helps the entire community. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We always want to make our money go as far as possible, right? So how about turning your $15 contribution into $30? That's for the whole year, by the way. That the, the group of generous listeners who's funding that is going to continue that match for the first full year of your donation. So why not, you know? You, you, you're getting a service for free. We often take it for granted. You Think about how many times you've said, you know what I heard on NPR? That is worth something. It is worth a value that we have to let you decide. We, You know, you tell us what you can afford. You tell us how much you rely on this station. You make the call at 1-800-909-9287 or WBOR.org. And we would also love to thank you with something Pretty darn necessary and pretty darn great. It's an Eton radio, uh, self-powered radio, extremely important for those times when there might be a power outage. Uh, and all you, you know, have to do is uh, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You can get that Eton radio as our thanks for your monthly contribution of $20 a month. And right now, that $20 dollars a month is being matched dollar for dollar. So that becomes $40 a month. That's $40 a month that helps WBUR provide the careful, nuanced, in-depth, in-context journalism that you count on. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, there is something reassuring about knowing that you can turn on 90.9 or stream online on your phone using our app, however you get the news, that it's just there for you. You don't have to think twice about it. You don't worry about, did I pay that monthly Mm. bill? Did I remember to up my subscription? Do I have the right password or passcode? No. It's just there for you. And 
That's true, but it's really only true because people like you make a donation to keep it coming. Now's the time for you to do your part. Whatever that is, you decide, but do make the call to 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at UMassMed.edu slash globe. Reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is joining the race for the Republican presidential nomination. He made his announcement on ABC's This Week a short time ago. He has called another presidential nomination for Donald Trump, a worse scenario for Republicans. I hear people talk about the leadership of our country, and I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. Hutchinson is urging Trump to step aside as he faces charges in New York over an alleged hush money payment to an adult film star. There's a risk of more severe weather, including tornadoes this week across the central U.S. after the region was struck earlier this weekend. NPR's Amy Held reports dozens of tornadoes left behind heavy damage across the south and midwest killing at least 26 people. The weekend of tornadoes may not be done yet. In Texas today, storms in the Dallas-Fort Worth area could bring more. And by Tuesday, the central U.S. may get hit again. A lot of severe weather across fairly similar areas to what we saw on Friday, except it's a little bit further west. We do expect the potential there for strong tornadoes. Jeremy Grahams, meteorologist at the Storm Prediction Center, says parts of Illinois and Arkansas are again at risk. They are among the half dozen or so states still recovering from that tornado outbreak. Many of those tornadoes have been rated strong. The system moved eastward, bringing high winds, taking down trees, causing tens of thousands of power outages across the eastern U.S., and a likely tornado in the Delaware area. Amy Held, NPR News. The Vatican marked the start of Holy Week with Palm Sunday services in St. Peter's Square. Tens of thousands attended Mass there today, and Pope Francis was there a day after he was released from a hospital in Rome following treatment for bronchitis. He was driven into the square, sitting in the back of an, in the back rather, of an open-top vehicle. Voters in Finland voting in a race so tight that any of the three parties could emerge with the most seats in Parliament. Terry Schultz reports ahead of Election Day today, 40 percent of Finns had already cast their ballots in early or absentee voting. Polls show Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin's Social Democrats running third behind the center-right coalition party and the nationalist Finns party. But the difference between them is so small, it's within the margin of error. Although she's given credit for steering the country solidly through COVID and into NATO membership due to be final 
finalized this week, Modern has also overseen a large increase in national debt while rejecting cuts to social services and assistance. The leading party, the center-right coalition, wants to reduce spending to bring down the deficit. The Finns party is more conservative, suggesting climate change commitments are hurting Finnish competitiveness and that the country should cut back on immigration. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Advocates in Massachusetts are expressing concern about federal efforts to make the overdose antidote Narcan more available by offering it for sale without a prescription. The drug already is distributed widely in Massachusetts. Joanne Peterson with the family support group Learn to Cope says if Narcan is no longer covered as a prescription, then buyers may need to pay the full cost, up to $150 for a kit. If Narcan is not as accessible because it's too expensive, then our fatality numbers could actually rise even higher. Health insurers say they will decide whether to continue covering Narcan as more information about the change is released in coming months. The state will pay $40 million to hundreds of police officers in Massachusetts who say they missed opportunities to be promoted because of a biased exam. The settlement concludes a decades-long fight by black and Hispanic officers who challenged the fairness of the sergeant's civil service promotional exam. Harold Lichten is their lead attorney, and he says in addition to monetary relief, the state agreed to implement a new test that focuses on job ability. We're going to have better police sergeants because we're going to know the people that we're promoting are good at the job as opposed to good at memorizing things in textbooks. He says Boston police officers were the most affected by the test's disparities. Members of a Boston band say they escaped injury when a tornado damaged the theater in Belvedere, Illinois. The heavy metal band Revocation was scheduled to perform at the Apollo Theater there when the ceiling collapsed Friday night. One person was killed. Forty other people were hurt. The tornado was part of storms that killed at least 26 people in the Midwest and South. The MBTA is reporting progress on lifting speed restrictions on the blue line. Data from the T this morning show trains are being forced to slow down on 56 percent of the tracks. Last week, 77 percent of the blue line was under speed restrictions. In sports this afternoon, the Bruins are in St. Louis against the Blues. And this afternoon at Fenway, the Red Sox wrap up the series with the Orioles. It is 41 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, breezy. Temperatures in the 40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for being here with us today. The airwaves are buzzing with news of the indictment of former President Donald Trump on 34 counts of business-related fraud. And everyone has something to say about it except the White House. Here's President Biden leaving the White House on Friday, emphatically not answering any questions about Trump's situation. I have no comment at all on that. I have no comment on that. I'm not going to talk about something that... 
We're joined now in studio by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Aisha. So we just heard President Biden basically say in every way possible, no comment. So why isn't he speaking about this? Yeah, you know, Aisha, it's interesting because, as you know, having covered Biden as well, I mean, he doesn't really stop to speak with reporters that often when he leaves the White House. But he did yesterday when he knew that that was the question that every reporter wanted to ask him. And as you just noted, it was no comment, no comment. Will this divide the country? No comment. Is this politically motivated? No comment. It was all these different variations. But, you know, it is kind of his strategy, you know, all along dealing with the former president, you know, which is to kind of show that he's staying or trying to stay out of the political fray. Don't comment on a political or an active investigation and say at least that he's focused on the Biden agenda. Like we said earlier, everybody's got an opinion on this, you know, including the American people. And and you were looking at some polls taken last week, right? Like, what did those numbers tell you? Aisha, the numbers tell us that Americans are very divided and not surprisingly along party lines. NPR actually did one of those polls along with PBS and Maris that came out just before the indictments did. It showed that nine out of 10 Democrats say the investigations are fair and eight out of 10 Republicans call them a witch hunt. It's so tribal that, you know, even some Republican opponents of Trump who could, you know, try to use this to their advantage, you know, in the Republican primaries coming up, are instead coming to his defense. And that's because, you know, in large part, because they see the polls. You know, another poll from Quinnipiac found that 93% of Republicans feel this case is politically motivated. That's a really high number. Okay, so, I mean, speaking of how things look to to the voters, like, as Trump is getting indicted, uh, Biden on Monday is leaving for Minneapolis as part of his Invest in America tour. He's touting the investments of his administration um, in the American economy. Like, is he going to be able to get that message out when everybody's focused on what's happening with Trump? Yeah, there's no question that so much focus, especially in D.C. and nationally, is going to be on the Trump indictment um, and him coming up to New York and how's it going to happen. But the White House is really more focused on the local coverage in these battleground states. And when I talk with Democratic strategists, they actually see this as an opportunity. Ben Tolchin, he's a Democratic pollster. I talked to him and he says the arrest is actually it actually provides a nice contrast between Biden and Trump. Uh, The White House couldn't ask for a better setup. President Biden gets to uh, look very presidential, go around the country uh, telling a good story about the economy and tackling inflation, while the split screen will be former President Trump getting uh, possibly getting arrested. And Aisha, it's not that Democrats aren't, you know, kind of worried about this. Uh, you know, they see some of these polls. There's independents who see this as politically motivated as well. I'll just note, you know, it's really a complicated situation. But, you know, the Democrats also point to Trump's track record when he is the focal point of the national narrative. And when that happens, Democrats have benefited, as we saw in, you know, several of the last elections. And then we got in less of the less than a minute we have left. Uh, President Biden is expected at some point to formally announce running for 2024. 
Like, what is he waiting for? Why hasn't he done it? <laughs> you know, the short answer is we don't entirely know, but it looks like it could be pretty soon. I mean, he's made a lot of policy moves to kind of position himself more in the center. You know, there was the D.C. crime bill and not opposing opposing Republican efforts to kind of overturn it, drilling in Alaska, and some really tough policies on immigration. And look, you know, this week he's going to Minnesota, as we noted. You know, he's fanning out along with members of his administration to talk about the economy. You know, and these are very key states, battleground states. So he's making the moves that you need to do to, to run. That's NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, Franco. Thanks, Aisha. Let's take a moment to examine the truly historic nature of this indictment of former President Trump and what it might mean as a kind of test of American democracy. Michael Gerhardt has spent his career thinking about the U.S. Constitution. He's a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He testified as a joint witness in the Clinton impeachment. He also testified before the House Judiciary Committee in Trump's first impeachment. Michael Gerhardt, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Walk us through, what does the Constitution have to tell us about this moment, the indictment of a former president? The Constitution actually has very little to say about this. The Constitution mostly addresses governmental action. So it, it might come into play if we were talking about a sitting president, but we're talking about somebody who's a private citizen. Granted, he is a former president, but right now the Constitution doesn't allow him or give him any entitlement to any special kind of immunity. But is there an idea of um, those kind of unspoken things, the traditions and these uh, kind of mores we've had as a society that have made legal prosecution of a former president tricky or complicated in the mind of even, you know, legal scholars? Yes, I mean, there are norms or practices that government, uh, in this case, the prosecutor might try to follow. Even so, there are norms or expectations that when there's a high profile figure like this, a prosecutor has got to be even more certain than usual that he or she has evidence beyond a reasonable doubt this person committed a crime. Presumably, the prosecutor in New York has used that standard. But at the same time, there are safeguards available to Trump as they would be available to any private citizen to test that and, and to try and seek some kind of proof that, that's really not evidence driving this, but partisanship. Trump and his supporters are calling this political persecution. Is there a risk where maybe, uh, you know, another prosecutor may go after Joe Biden after he leaves office? Like, is that a, a concern that you could have this kind of ping pong effect um, once people leave office? Well, Trump has raised that concern before. He actually raised it in a case in the Supreme Court called Trump versus Vance involving a district attorney of Manhattan while Trump was president. And the Supreme Court of the United States, with the justices uh, that Trump had appointed, found no legitimate basis for Trump's concern, even as a sitting president, to have a state prosecutor conduct a criminal investigation of Trump. So now Trump's no longer in office, and therefore we don't really have any more concerns now that he's out of office than we might have had while he was in office. What Trump is raising largely are, is a political case. Uh, trying to sort of rev up the political base to protest, perhaps like what happened on January 6th. What's at stake um, 
actually in this case is also something that's at stake insofar as democracy is concerned. And that has to do with the rule of law. The rule of law is fundamental to the maintenance of our democracy. And one question here is whether or not that rule of law could be applied fairly to Mr. Trump in the criminal process. We're gonna see lots of tests of that, but that's the main thing I think you've gotta watch is whether or not the rule of law is gonna be followed in this matter, regardless of how powerful this person was or will be. And so when, when, when you're saying that's what we should look for, what specific things do you mean um, to, to ensure that the rule of law is playing out as it should? What should people be looking for? Well, what they're going to look for, I think, primarily has to do with the evidence. How strong and clear is it? Next thing we've got to watch, of course, is the actual trial. Mr. Trump's lawyers will be there every step of the way, and they'll have to make sure that the jury is fairly chosen and that the jury does its job. This ultimately will be decided not in the court of a public opinion, but it'll be decided by those 12 people. And that's what happens every day in criminal trials. And the Constitution will apply every step of the way to ensure a fair trial for Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump may cross-examine witnesses who are hostile to him, and the prosecution may put on its case. And if it's done properly, uh, and there's a result that's a conviction, then of course, Mr. Trump may appeal that conviction. If Mr. Trump is found innocent, then according to the law, that's the end of the matter. The prosecutor doesn't get a second chance and the prosecutor doesn't get to appeal a finding of innocence. That's Michael Gerhardt. He is a constitutional law scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, tick bites are possible year-round, but April through September is peak tick season. And it's not all about Lyme disease. For instance, a bite from the Lone Star tick can make you allergic to meat. And some of those who are bitten have to change their diets for good or risk getting sick. I miss bacon. I miss hamburgers. But after suffering through those two episodes, I don't miss them that much. Hear what doctors are learning about these tick bites live on this station's website at npr.org or on your radio. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 1018. And coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear about a backlash against legal marijuana in a rural part of Oregon and how it's helping revive a push in that region to become part of Idaho instead. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. This is Lisa Mullins. Support from our listeners does more than pay for WBUR's journalism. Your support makes editorial independence a reality. 
And it all starts with your gift of $10 or maybe $15 a month. Those ongoing monthly contributions are how we pay for independent journalism. Sustain the journalism that sustains you. Start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. And right now, your generous monthly contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. That means when you go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and you give $10 a month or $30 a month or $100 a month, whatever amount feels right for you, that will be matched dollar for dollar. Your $10 a month becomes $20 a month, et cetera. Uh, you can do the math. Most importantly, you can make the phone call or go to the website, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. What you can do is make use of this time to call 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And, you know... You may be thinking you sort of just woke up or, you know, how is it already 1020 in the morning? I was just eating pancakes a second ago as the sun was rising. But the day does indeed have a way of sort of escaping your grasp sometimes. So that's why I would encourage you to right now, while you're thinking of it and while this match is a thing, call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody here with WBUR's Martha Beavinger to remind you that time is of the essence. Really is a critical moment, Sharon, for people to do that because we're trying to balance and filter so many things this week coming up with the uh, indictment of former President Donald Trump. As we just heard in the in the conversation with the constitutional scholar, there's the rule of law and then there's the, the political context in which this is all playing out. So one thing that you get here on WBUR is the assurity that what you hear is grounded in facts. That gives you some level of trust that what you hear is news you can count on, news that you know is vetted, news that really helps you stay grounded in these moments that can feel really fraught. There is some tremendous value to that. We don't put a value on it. We don't send you a bill. We don't tell you how much you need to pay for that. But we do ask that you do your part when it's time. Here's one little incentive because we love to say thanks here at WBUR. We're grateful for your listening ears, but we are extra grateful for your money. And to say thanks... We would love to send you an Eton radio, one of those hand-cranked devices that'll keep you connected to the world and keep your phone charged and give you a flashlight and all kinds of good things for $20 a month. If that contribution works for you, it will be doubled right now to $40 a month. So why not take advantage of that moment? Why not take advantage of this offer? Why not hop on the phone? 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. My name is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter at WBUR. Apparently, around the 19th century and going forward into the 20th century, this new sort of deed restriction started to appear. Somebody would sell a piece of land and include in the deed a restriction that only certain people could live there. One of the racist deed restrictions that we uncovered was in Wilmington. 
the deed prohibited anybody from Ireland from inhabiting this plot of land. So I was able to find the house and found the couple. They were home and Mary Tazone Kaiser was blown away. It's disgusting. I mean, to like discriminate against anybody so they can't own land for whatever reason or live in a, live in a house for whatever reason. This kind of reporting matters to our listeners. It matters to our station. Go to WBUR.org and sign up to become a monthly contributor. And I'm here to second that emotion from Simone Rios. Think about how much WBUR adds to your understanding of the world. And keep in mind that the largest share of WBUR's funding is listener support. When you make that monthly contribution, we then turn that directly into the journalism that is so important to your understanding of our communities and of our world. WBUR.org is where you can go to make that contribution. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. And keep in mind, there's a match, a dollar-for-dollar match in effect right now. And so what that means is when you make that call or go to the website right now, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. And we'd also be delighted to be able to thank you with an Eaton radio, uh, you know, the self-powered radio that will come in uh, more than handy. It's absolutely crucial for, uh, you know, when there's power outages. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR is a community resource. It's built on a partnership where we deliver you the news you count on, the news you rely on every day, and you do your part when it's time to help pay for that. We are so grateful for all of you who have contributed already. If you haven't, or it's been a while, take a minute. It will just take one or two. You'll feel great, and we will continue to bring you the news you count on. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. People who live in rural America have long complained about having to live under laws made by people who live mostly in cities. Eastern Oregon feels so divorced from the politics of Portland that it's now pushing to join their conservative neighbor, Idaho. But the booming marijuana businesses on the Idaho-Oregon border remain a point of tension. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Just west of Boise, the mighty Snake River divides Idaho from Oregon, but the land on both sides of the river here looks pretty similar, rolling sagebrush hills, small towns with feed stores and little cafes. Except one of these towns right here on the border, Ontario, is being transformed. Smells like weed here. Ontario, Oregon, population 11,000, now offers 12 marijuana dispensaries to browse through. 
see mostly Idaho and specifically Boise license plates and really a cross-section of people coming in, uh, guys in Carhartts, pickups, and quite a few older people too. This little farming town sells more pot per capita than anywhere else in Oregon, more than 100 million in sales a year. And the open secret is that these dispensaries are actually mostly here to serve the Boise metro area where even medical marijuana is illegal. Stephen Meehlin co-owns the bustling and modern hot box farms. There's, you know, over a million people within a 100-mile radius of the store. And so, though there's several right here in Ontario, of course, it, um, they are serving a broader market. Hotbox is a big player in an economic boom that's happened since Ontario allowed recreational pot shops in 2018. These dispensaries employ an estimated 600 people now. Many get health insurance benefits, and most, like their customers, appear to be commuting over here from Idaho. That's where Milan's from. The politicians have been able to have this uh, scenario where they can uh, say that they don't have legal cannabis, but in all actuality, we all know there's legal cannabis in Boise. That really bugs Idaho conservatives like State Representative Barbara Ehart. She's pushing a bill that would authorize her state to begin talks with Oregon lawmakers about moving the border. You know, we have a little bit of a drug problem right on the side of our border. A lot of Idahoans are going there and getting drugs. That will be pushed hundreds of miles away. Her colleague, Republican Judy Boyle, is co-sponsor of the so-called Greater Idaho Plan, which recently passed the state house. So by moving that border back over way on the other side, at least the drugs would be that far away. Pushing Idaho's border hundreds of miles west is just one of a litany of far-right bills introduced in Idaho's Republican supermajority legislature. Others included a proposal to make it a crime for doctors to administer COVID vaccines, or if someone helps a girl under 18 get an abortion. By contrast, Oregon voters recently decriminalized small amounts of hard drugs, like cocaine and heroin, and approved tighter gun laws, which have long been unpopular in the sparsely populated lands east of the Cascade Mountains, where folks will tell you can take the sheriff an hour or more to get out to a call. The partisanship has grown, and, and just the cultures have grown apart. Oregon resident Matt McCaws with the group Citizens for Greater Idaho. They've convinced 11 eastern Oregon counties to pass resolutions in support of being annexed into Idaho. Now, one of them is Malheur County, where Ontario is, and where longtime local Ron Jacobs sits on the county commission. We just feel like that, you know, our conservative values are, are different than theirs, and they pass so many laws over there that they don't even take us into consideration. We're kind of a stepchild over here in eastern Oregon. Now, Jacobs knows Greater Idaho is a long shot. Even if both state legislatures were to approve it, it would still take an act of Congress to even move forward. But he says it started an important conversation. Stephen Meelan, the owner of Hotbox, says he thinks the Greater Idaho idea may backfire and end up building more support for legalizing marijuana in Idaho. The industry is betting on the cultural and political divide over legal pot evaporating in the face of another conservative value, the free market.
Remember that Ontario was conservative right-wing Ontario just a couple years ago as well. They always said they'd never, ever legalize. But today, the town rakes in well over $2 million a year in taxes from dispensaries like this. People don't find cannabis to be this big, scary thing that historically politicians have made it out to be. In Idaho, uh, though, legalizing recreational pot may still be a little pie in the sky. So, too, is the possibility of greater Idaho passing. But conservatives here see momentum. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Ontario, Oregon. Artificial intelligence is all the rage right now. And the metaverse, not so much. Companies are scaling back metaverse projects. And last week, Disney and Microsoft said they were shuttering some of their efforts. Even Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, seems to be dialing back too. NPR's Derek Kerr has looked into why and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hello. So let's start with Meta because it changed its name to signal it was going to be all about the metaverse. So is that now looking like it's a bad bet? Yeah. So it was only in late 2021 when Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced his vision of the metaverse. His plans included not only renaming Facebook as Meta, but also laying out this idea of this alternate world where he believed humans would interact in the future with cartoon-like avatars. Basically, it's a series of immersive online worlds where you can shoot hoops with your friends or buy real estate or go to an art gallery. There was skepticism at the time. The idea just hasn't really picked up. I spoke to Mike Pru, a Forrester analyst, and I really like how he describes it. We saw 2022 as the year of metaverse hype, and in 2023, we're experiencing effectively a metaverse hangover. Pru said his data shows that people aren't yet really excited about the concept of the metaverse and instead are still craving real life physical connection. Yeah, it seems like, you know, the whole thing with the pandemic, people still want to get out and touch each other. So does it look like Meta's really going to ditch its plans? Yeah, so Meta has very slightly dialed back a bit of its metaverse rhetoric. And in recent layoffs, some of the employees who were let go were from the metaverse division. But in its last earnings call, this was in February, Mark Zuckerberg made it clear he still had big ambitions around the metaverse. And we're seeing that plan in action. For example, just this week, Meta had an ad on Hulu about the metaverse. But what's interesting is rather than laying out this futuristic world where we can all hang out, The ad talks about how the metaverse can help us in our real world. And while the woolly mammoth is still extinct, that doesn't mean students can't take field trips to visit them. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. So Meta is also at this point getting into the newest tech innovation that's getting a lot of hype right now, and that's AI. But does getting into AI get in the way of its vision for the metaverse? Now, Zuckerberg actually said it dovetails with his metaverse plans. He said Meta is planning to use AI to build out the metaverse. It'll do that with this supercomputer that the company is developing. Zuckerberg says the computer will use trillions of examples from the real world to create this virtual metaverse. But one problem with the metaverse is people need to buy hardware. They need those virtual reality headsets. And that could be a big roadblock to adoption. I don't have one of those headsets. They cost a few hundred dollars. But hearing from people who do, it seems that the metaverse is now kind of empty in a dead zone. 
This is from the Wall Street Journal. It's something called the Hot Girl Summer Rooftop Pool, and apparently it's now empty. And the Macy's virtual Thanksgiving Day Parade sounded kind of sad. It was even called tragic. Oh, my goodness. This sounds sounds really, really depressing. I know. Just all gray. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, all the headlines have been eaten up by AI and ChatGPT and the things that they can do, like write poems in the style of Walt Whitman and ace the SATs and ponder the meaning of life. Prue, the Forrester analyst, said the metaverse is a long-term play, so it's going to take a while. Whereas AI, we're immediately getting all these short-term, real-world practical uses. So essentially, it seems that us humans aren't yet ready to go live in another reality. And instead, we want to stay in this world where AI is changing our actual lives. Well, we'll see what happens with that. That's NPR's Dara Kerr. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so it looks like Mickey Mouse just pulled one over on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, at least for the moment. The dispute started back when Disney objected to what critics call Florida's don't say gay law. DeSantis then signed a bill that basically allowed him to put allies on a board that controls a special tax zone that includes Walt Disney World. At least that's what the governor thought he'd done. To give us the scoop, Matt Bellany joins us. He covers Hollywood for Puck News, and he's also a lawyer, which is going to come in handy with this because it's a little complicated. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yes, it's very complicated. So this new board Governor DeSantis had put in place has gotten some big surprise in the past few days, right? Like, what, what happened with this? So at the last meeting before this new board took over, the Disney-backed board did something interesting. They changed a bunch of the bylaws and essentially handcuffed this new board where it is not going to be able to do most of the things that they thought they were going to be able to do. They can't govern the theme parks. They can't um, decide where the taxes go. They basically can't do anything except maintain the roads and the foliage around the roads. And that was a very deliberate move by Disney in advance of this turnover. And it's something that I know Disney is very confident legally that it has done the right thing here. All of this hinges on something I had never heard before, but it's something called the Royal Lives Clause, or they were talking about perpetuity on Twitter. (laughs) And I was like, what is going on? Okay, so this is an interesting wrinkle here because what Disney did is they included language in the agreement. There's a rule in in the law called the rule against perpetuity where you're not allowed to keep something in the the same hands forever. So in a lot of like 18th and 19th century property documents, you would see this language referring to this property is in the hands and will be governed based on the descendants of the king and their descendants and no longer. So they said that basically King Charles III of the United Kingdom, that this would be in place until like 21 years after his last living descendant. That seemed like a long time. (laughs) It it is a long time. And they did it because 
royal people tend to live a long time. Yeah. They are very well taken care of. <laughs> yes. The queen yeah. that just passed away lived to almost 100. Yes. So basically, this happened in, in a, an open hearing. Um, they didn't hide it, but they didn't, like, you know, broadcast it from the mountaintops. They didn't say, this is what we're doing, but somebody could have paid attention, right? Exactly. This was a public hearing. In fact, it was so public that a Disney podcaster attended and talked about it on the Disney Dish podcast when it happened. <laughs> but Disney certainly didn't announce it. And they didn't make any fanfare after all of this was passed. It is only coming out now because the new board is in place and they are expressing frustration at their inability to do anything. And then the or Orlando Sentinel wrote about the whole controversy and now everybody's talking about. So what might come next? I mean, it sounds like when you're talking about Disney, you're talking about a state, it sounds like it could be a big legal battle. Well, this is a legal and political fight. We have no idea how DeSantis is going to respond. Whenever you're in a fight with the governor of a state, they have a lot of powers and they have a lot of things they can do to make your life not fun. But Disney would argue that they're the victims here. They were just doing what they do normally, and they've had this special tax district for 50 years, and it was DeSantis who went after them, not vice versa. That's Matt Bellany, who covers Hollywood in his podcast, The Town. Thanks so much for talking about this with us. Thank you. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 1040. And coming up in a few minutes, the Sunday Puzzle, plus a refresher on some basic facts of trigonometry. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative, bringing Jewish culture to life for us all, in person and online. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We are asking you to make a monthly contribution to WBUR. It lets us keep bringing you the journalism that we all need. You can make that contribution by going to 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. Your monthly contribution is crucial because the largest share of our funding is listener support. So once you make that contribution, we will turn your money directly into some pretty darn great journalism. And it all gets started when you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And right now, 
a match is in effect. It's a dollar for dollar match. That means when you contribute $10 a month, uh, your contribution turns into $20 a month. If you can contribute $50 a month, that turns into $100 a month. Thank you so much for making the call or going online. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR is part of the routine for so many of you who are listening. It might be the puzzle. Maybe that's something that you make sure you listen to every Sunday. It might be the preset on your radio. It might be still the alarm that you wake up to every morning. WBOR is part of the fabric of this community. And to be sure that you can have it anytime you need it, including during a power outage, how about a $20 a month pledge for an Eton radio? If you haven't seen one of these before, it's this really cool little device with a hand crank on it. It's got built-in solar panels so you can power it with the sun. It'll charge your phone. It's got a flashlight. It's there for you in the way that WBUR is always there for you. But don't take that for granted. Do what you can to support this radio station that runs on your funds. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And you certainly know about the uncertainty of the economy. You hear about it on WBUR. The uncertainty actually affects us, too. Here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So my hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. And please give as generously as you can. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And keep in mind, when you do that right now, you can take advantage of this dollar-for-dollar match. It's in effect right now, and what it does is it matches your contribution dollar-for-dollar, as the name would imply, and that means that your monthly contribution of $20 a month becomes $40 a month. If you can give $100 a month, that's $200 a month. And that is incredibly important, being as the largest share of our funding is listener support. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And again, we would absolutely love to send you in Eton Radio, this self-powered radio that keeps you connected, even if there's you know power outages and uh, all sorts of calamities that can strike. You can have this Eton Radio. That would be our thanks to you for your monthly contribution of $20 a month. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We are only as strong as you. We are only as strong as the contribution you can provide to help keep this radio station as vibrant and critical as it is now. It's up to you, folks, really. The economy is in a tough shape. Maybe many of you have been stretched to your limits. If you are, sit back. We're here for you. Don't worry. But we think many of you can do what more, more than what you are doing right now 
If you're not contributing at all, now is the time to start. We rely on you in the same way you rely on us. With this dollar for dollar match, your money can go twice as far right now, twice as far for a whole year. So pick up the phone, 1-800-909-9287, or make a quick and easy donation at WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Catherine Keniston of Beaverton, Oregon. I said, name two brands of household products, each in three syllables, and all the syllables in the two brands rhyme with each other. What brand names are they? And they are Listerine and Mr. Clean. Mmm. Oh, that is that. I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, <laughs> y'all must really know your household products, um, unlike me, because a lot of you got this correct. Out of nearly 600 correct answers, Carrie Blum of New York, New York is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. How long have you been playing the puzzle? Uh, you know, it's funny you should ask. I, I actually started playing when I was way too young to even be able to get the answer right. Probably about eight years old. And after oh my maybe after a long hiatus, uh, I restarted just a few years ago. Oh, okay. So you were listening with your parents. I'm sure you, you weren't listening just on your own to the puzzle. That's right. I, my dad would tune in and I would, I would listen every week with him. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm a primary care doctor, so that keeps me pretty busy. Yeah. And I hang out with my my two young daughters, one and three years old. Okay, so that is a busy life, a lot going on. And now you get to spend a little time playing the puzzle. Are you ready? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you are ready. If you can treat people's lives, their health, they put their health in your hands, you can do this puzzle. I certainly hope so. I hope I don't have any patients listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it away, Will. All right, Carrie, I'm sure you're going to do fine. Every answer today is a word in which the only consonants are R and T. Repeat it as often as necessary. All the other letters are vowels, and the letter Y is not used. For example, if I said characteristic, you would say trait, T-R-A-I-T. The only consonants there are R and T. So here you go. Number one is a common fish in streams. Trout. That's right. Number two, a participant in a civil disturbance. Rioter. Uh-huh. Extreme fright. Terror. That's it. Kind of sauce for seafood. Um... Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. 
Oh, tartar, tartar sauce. Yes. <laughs> you got it. To turn as wheels. Rotate. Uh-huh. Means for connecting to the internet. Router. You got it. A grand speaker. Orator. Uh-huh. A tenacious dog. And we're going into seven letters now. Uh, carrier. That's it. A turncoat. Um, trader. Uh-huh. Getaway for meditation or study. Retreat. Uh-huh. Try this one, eight letters, to annoy. Mm. Starts with an I. Irritate. Irritate is it. How about an Italian eatery? We're on to nine letters now. Trattoria. Trattoria. You got it. And here's your last one. It's a hyphenated word, 12 letters, and your clue is seesaw. Teeter-totter. A teeter-totter. Good job. Oh, my gosh. You did a great job with that. Like... <laughs> that could have been worse for sure. Thank you. I'm glad you did not need much help with that because I wouldn't have been a whole lot of help, but <laughs> you did an amazing job. Like, how do you feel? Uh, definitely relieved and less embarrassed than I could be, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You shouldn't be embarrassed at all. You did awesome. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a Weekend Edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Carrie, what member station do you listen to? WNYC. That's Carrie Blum of New York, New York. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Mark Maxwell-Smith. Think of an eight-letter word for a certain musician. Switch the order of the second and fourth letters, and you'll get a word for a certain writer. What words are these? And I'm looking for words, not famous people. So again, an eight-letter word for a certain musician. Switch the order of the second and fourth letters, and you'll get a word for a certain writer. What people are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, April 6th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Okay, so hold on, Will. Um, before we totally wrap up this week's puzzle, we need to uh, admit to a bit of a mistake that we made in one of our answers last week. I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And when you say we, that's very generous. But uh, <laughs> it was my mistake. <laughs> so he here is what happened. In math, what cosine is to sine? Inverse function. Inverse function, is it? Okay, ah, so as it turns out, that is not it. <laughs> and y'all did not hesitate to give us a quick math lesson, specifically in trigonometry. Um, do, do you remember trigonometry, Will? I mean, I think I learned it either junior high or senior high or whatever high, but it was a long time ago. That's what I know. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember taking trigonometry, and obviously I've forgotten part of it, too. <laughs> So we got a lot of emails on this, including one from Martha Hastings, a professor of engineering mathematics at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. So first off, what's the inverse of a function? 
if two functions are inverses, that means that one reverses the action of the other. And Professor Hastings said that the cosine function definitely does not do this for sine. So does sine even have an inverse function? There is a function which does always reverse the action of the sine function, and it's called the arcsine function. All right, so I think I get it, or I'm going to pretend that I get it. Do you Do you got it, Will? Oh, I got it, yeah. <laughs> I will try never to make that mistake again. And to our listeners, thank you for keeping us on our toes. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is WBUR's Martha Biebinger. And we are asking you to go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909-9287. We promise you that we will not ask you anything about trigonometry, no inverse functions, no sines, no cosines, no arc sine functions. We will just ask you to understand this equation. The largest share of WBUR's funding is listener support. And then once you support WBUR, we will take your contribution and turn that directly into the journalism and all the programming that you count on here on WBUR. Right now, for just a few more minutes, a match is in effect for every dollar you contribute it's matched dollar for dollar. That means if you are able to give $10 a month, that contribution turns into $10 a month. If you could give $1,000 right now, this would be the time to do it because that becomes $2,000. WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. WBUR is the station that so many of you count on to be sure that you are ready for the week ahead. You know, the power of this station is you. Whether you can give $2 a month or a thousand, two thousand even, as, as Sharon was just saying, we ask you to do what you can. We cannot present this news without you, literally. You are the engine that drives this. You are the public. You are the boss. And that means you're kind of in control to know whether we can keep doing what we're doing. So step up to the plate, folks. Now is the moment. You've got this dollar for dollar match. Your money's going to go twice as far. Whatever you think makes sense, let us know. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And we would really like to thank you with an Eton radio, the self-powered radio. Uh, if you have ever, uh, you know, suffered through an extended powder, power outage, you know that it is important to have a self-powered radio to stay connected. Um, it's also a cell phone charger. It's got the flashlight. It's got everything you need in those sorts of situations. And we would be very happy to make that yours. Uh, that would happen if you make a monthly contribution of $20 a month. And remember, right now, that actually will be matched dollar for dollar. So your monthly contribution of $20 uh, becomes $40 a month. Uh, that's more money for WBUR to use to make great journalism. And the number to call is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, that little math lesson we heard about the definition mm -hmm. of the cosine, it's a little, it's, it's funny, right? But it, it does show you really, folks, like, how carefully we vet the facts. Yes. I mean, we have uh, listeners who can correct us on any moment in time, any piece of grammar, any piece of math, whatever it is. And we love that. We love that you come back to us and we take it so seriously. But behind the scenes, that's happening every single day. 
with the stories that we put out there. And that's why you can trust us, because you know we are taking that kind of time and care to be sure that what you hear is right, that, it's, that you can count on it. So that, we hope, is worth some value in your life, and we hope that you'll take the time now to let us know what it's worth in your life with a dollar figure, with a monthly contribution of 5 10 15 If it's $100 a month, fabulous. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I think there are sort of two things that people often don't quite understand, no matter how much they listen to WBUR. And one is that it is true that the largest share of our funding is from listener support. And also what you just referenced, Martha, the that you know what what you are getting when you listen to us on the radio or through the app or whether you're listening to podcasts or reading the newsletter that that is in a sense the tip of the journalistic iceberg and that there are editors and producers and you know uh, sound designers and so many people that are in some respects behind the scenes who are making sure that what you receive in the way by the way of journalism from WBUR is accurate, it's clear, it is in the proper context, and that is something that we know you value whether you fully understand the workings of it or not. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Do it now while this dollar-for-dollar match is in effect and thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, Masters in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, with experientially based classes led by supportive faculty, GRE not required, and state licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.